I continue uh, with the discussion, my sharing, and then the discussion around sila or the precepts. I want to say a little bit more about consumption and then spend some time on right speech. And again, we're we're thinking about the precepts not in terms of a rigid rule, but using them as a skillful means to illuminate what we're not seeing about life, about our experience, and in particular, illuminate how we set in motion stress and suffering for ourselves and others, and how we can be really happy. I think it's so important to think about all of these teachings, as I said, I think the first night, all of these teachings, all of these practices, the fact that we come together like this for a retreat, it's about being happy. And as Julie sarcastically said, you know, sometimes we wonder, you know, is this the right place for happiness? Is this the right activity? Does this actually lead to happiness? So that's called doubt. (laughs) (laughs) But we want to keep putting it front and center because actually, uh, you know, we have quite a capacity to do things that hurt human beings do. I mean, we can be in toxic relationships for decades. We can be in, you know, jobs or other sort of commitments that just aren't working, that are really painful. And yet, we seem to be able to justify that for a long time, being oppressed. So we want to remember that this is a practice of happiness, of release, of freedom. And so when we take up the precepts as a skillful means for happiness, then we have to have some intuitive sense that it's helping, or we should try something different, or we should look more carefully what might be off, what's not working. So for example, the whole area of uh, skillful consumption, or just looking at consumption, and looking at our tendency to want to take things that aren't naturally being offered to us, one wanting to hold things that are naturally going away from us, hold on to our youth, or whatever we might be grasping, desiring, exciting sexual experiences without paying attention to the consequence of them, or, you know, desiring, like, uh, you know, various intoxicated experiences, whether that's coming from movies or media or coming from drugs or alcohol, but just wanting something exciting, but not understanding, not really wanting to pay attention to all of the consequences, everything that's involved in our choices. And I really see this as a kind of maturing when we're interested in consumption and interested in all of the ramifications for our patterns around consumption. It's like we have a maturing attitude about life where we're not just interested in something that's immediate, immediately exciting, immediately gratifying, but we understand that we're in it for the long haul, so we're interested, like, what will this be satisfying when I wake up tomorrow? (laughs) Will this feel good later, next week, next year? Or is this going to be you know, uh, a painful feeling as I think back on it in the years ahead, in the weeks ahead. The Buddha was very encouraging about 
this capacity we have to um, abandon what's unskillful and cultivate what's skillful. At one point in one of the discourses he said, if this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not, ask, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it, this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful and develop what's skillful. It's possible to develop what's skillful. If it weren't possible, I wouldn't ask you to develop what's skillful. And he goes on the same with uh, skillful. If it was conducive to harm, I wouldn't ask you, but it's precisely because it's conducive to your own well-being and the well-being of others. I'm asking you to cultivate what's skillful. And there's various ways that we, you know, in terms of looking at our consumption, our patterns around consumption, you know, the various windows, we can look for greed, we can look for aversion, we can look for delusion or disconnection. Or there's one list, the ten armies of Mara. Mara is the personification of ignorance. So sensual pleasures, not that they're wrong, but we understand that we tend to be confused around pleasant experiences discontent, hunger and thirst, craving, sloth and torpor, fear, doubt, conceit and ingratitude, gain, renown, honor, and whatever fame is falsely received, and whoever both extols oneself and disparages others. These are the ten armies of Mara. The question is, how are these different forces of ignorance, forces of narrowness and tightness, how are they wrapped up in our patterns of consumption around food, around sex, around intoxicants, around possessions, around um, like getting respect or getting power from others? How do we see these different forces and how are we able to connect, you know, that uh, consumption pattern being colored by discontent or being colored by boredom, how, what it sets in motion, really making the connection between this pattern, this, these attitudes, and being tight and being unhappy. If we had a lot of time, it would be nice to hear people just name, and we'll have a little time, but just name the different ways you consume out of fear. You know how it is where whenever we stumble upon abundance, it's like a primitive feeling that, you know, there's not enough, so I better take a lot. I don't know if you noticed those cheery-looking peanut M&Ms that somebody left (laughs) the other night. And, you know, it's a whole bowl. You know, and when nobody's around, it seems so appropriate. I mean, just all the different ways that hoarding instinct operates in our mind. And, and to be interested in it, not to immediately like hate it because we know it's bad, but that's not really the practice. That's just more suffering. But to get interested in that whole dynamic, to get interested in on how hoarding makes us tight, and to get interested on the roots, like what is the attitude or the view out of which the need to take what we don't need arises. What is that? You know, some feeling 
of, of not having enough or uh, just an ongoing fear that uh, scarcity is just around the corner. Sure, I had enough to eat today, but who knows whether I'll have enough to eat tomorrow. I mean, I can't tell you how many meals I've had in my life, not because I was hungry, but because I thought I wouldn't have food, uh, that there was a possibility I might be hungry later. You know that feeling? It's like, I better eat now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we see this a lot in animals, you know, around hoarding. Because they're, you know, with human beings, we, we, we can reflect rationally about these things in a way animals are more limited about that. So if it's there, they're going to eat until they can't eat anymore. So we could talk about that. We could talk about um, patterns of consumption where it's really about this initial rush when we get it. It's like the mind is addicted to that moment of gratification. We get the, we get the treat, whatever it is. And the interesting thing we can discover about that is how we're actually creating the pain that's relieved when we get what we want. So you just think about some of these things that you know, keep arising in our mind, whatever it might be. Um, lying down, you know, that's one of the things, especially, you know, we think a non-residential retreat would be easier, but actually in some ways it's harder. We don't have a, a little bedroom or tent to run off to and sneak away and lie down in the middle of the day, rest our back a little bit, kind of forced to always be around people unless you have an office in the building. <laughs> and um, so, you know, you might, just the thought of lying down. And the thing is, you know, it's a pleasant experience. But what makes it so intoxicating is the, the tension in the mind. It's like, oh, lying down. And wanting that so badly, actually we're whipping up pain. And then when we get there, we get to the bed and we lie down, we don't have to whip up that pain anymore. So that goes away. So more than the actual pleasantness of lying down is the dropping away of desiring. And this is often driving our consumption patterns. We whip something up so much that it hurts. And we think that that hurt means we really, really want it. And then when we have it, we don't feel, it, like unconsciously, we stop that whipping up because we have it. It wouldn't make sense to want it when we have it. And so we feel that temporary relief of not wanting it because we have it. You see this in children who really want something, really want something. And they want it especially because they can't have it right now. You know, oh, the toy's at home. You'll get it. We'll be home. And, no, I want it. You know? <laughs> and they have it, and, they, and there's a little relief. But how long does that last? It's so ephemeral, so limited, that feeling of release or relief. The image that comes to mind is like a bull, those big oxen with the ring in their nose, and how... You know, the little boys and the people who are maybe one-tenth the weight of the ox, they can make the ox do whatever they want it to do because the ox is willing to 
submit to a life of slavery to avoid the short-term pain of, you know, jerking its neck and throwing the person away and having some pain in its nose. And it's that, I think it's that way too. We, we create all this froth about wanting something and it's like just to let that whole drama die, it's painful because we've created this idea that we need something, we want something, and to let that whole house of cards fall apart is, you know, is suffering the experience of loss. It is a loss. We're losing something that was manufactured, but we're still losing something. This idea of satisfaction that we've whipped up. And so to avoid that feeling of loss, of disappointment, we're willing to be enslaved by these endless desires. Oh, if only, then I'll be happy. If only. And I see this, you know, a lot. And it's like, the more you see it, the harder it is to actually whip something up that captivates the mind. Well, I could scramble eggs now. You know, I could have hummus now. You know, I could have yogurt and prunes now. You know, popcorn, oh yeah, popcorn, (laughs) a lot of butter. You know, and then the mind grabs, sort of takes the hook, and then we're off. I've noticed patterns of consumption being driven by just uh, wanting to stay busy, like avoiding feeling what I'm feeling. It's like just a basic way to distract myself. And it's related to what I was just saying, like what possibly could I get interested in consuming? Could I consume some news? Could I consume a walk? Could I consume some water? Consume a conversation? What can I lose myself in so I don't have to feel what I'm feeling? So I don't have to, in a sense, be alone with this feeling, with this present moment, body, mind experience. How much entertainment is consumed just because, in a sense, we're afraid of being alone with our experience. I mean, for some people, that's one of the most frightening things, is to be alone. I mean, what do we do to really punish people? Solitary confinement. I mean, I'm not saying it's a pleasant experience, but I I think what makes it really hard is that we're all alone with our mind and our body sensations. I mean, we know this very well in sitting practice where for 40 minutes, in a way, we're all alone with the way the body is. And our only hope is to get either very distracted or very concentrated or very wise, right? That's the only way a human being can deal with the body. We have to get lost in thought and then it's not a problem. Get really concentrated in the awareness, retreats from sense experience, and then we get some relief, or we get wise and we don't take the sensations personally. Otherwise, most of us have unpleasant experiences in our body. And you can just check for yourself, like when you're not bothered by the body, just ask yourself, am I distracted? Do I have an effective distraction going on? You know, has a sit just begun? (laughs) You know, am I really concentrated? Or am I enlightened in this moment? 
And these are all related. You know, another thing we do is we consume to go unconscious. It's like a, a little bit of a death, overeating, over drinking, over consumption of media, different kinds of stories, whether they're book form or TV form or movie form or just conversation form. We consume as a reward, like to motivate us, you know, dangling the carrot in front of us. Now, of course, the most important thing to reflect on is how can, how might a wise person, compassionate person, how might they experience or relate to this world of consumption? Because there's no way around it. You know, being alive, we're going to be consuming. There's no way around that. So how can consumption, instead of being a cause for suffering, how can consumption be an expression of freedom? an expression of love, an expression of ease, effortlessness. And that's really uh, how we can work with the precepts, too. The precepts aren't just don't do that, don't do this, don't have sex unless you really love the person, don't intoxicate your mind, don't take things that aren't given. The precepts are also pointing to uh, a naturalness or a harmony that we can have with life. There's that story, I'm sure many of you have heard it before. I'm not even sure where it originated. It's just a, it's an interesting story about the human mind that it's told in terms of heaven and hell and entering a hallway and heaven's on one side and hell's on the other side. Both are, uh, are behind big doors. And the person's there wondering, oh, let me check this out. You know, So we ask God or Peter or whoever guards the gates of heaven and hell to let, you know, to let, let us take a peek. And first, the door to hell is opened. And surprisingly, the person sees this big, long banquet table and uh, amazing food hot, piping hot, ready to eat, just decked out on that table. And a lot of people sitting around the table and they've got these boards taped to their arms so their elbows can't bend. (laughs) And maybe they're taped to the back of the chair so they can't even bend forward. And so what the person sees in hell is these people grabbing their plates, their forks, but they can't get it to their mouth you know, and then dropping it onto the trying to catch it, burning themselves, making a mess. <laughs> it's hell. <laughs> Bumping each other, getting angry, frustrated, burnt, hungry. Real hell. And the person says, okay, enough, enough. I want to see heaven. So they leave that room, go to the other. The door opens. Same scene huge banquet table, amazing foods, piping hot. Same people taped to the back of their chairs with these sticks or posts on their arms because they can't bend their elbows. But of course, they're feeding each other and very happy, having plenty to eat, you know, and, and really having a nice, harmonious experience. 
And the reason the story is so nice, of course, is that you know the, it isn't about the particular conditions. That's the point, right? It's about the attitude, about how we um, think about how we relate to consumption. You know, from a self-centered point of view, you know, our consumption is more meaningful than your consumption. I don't think a day goes by where this uh, doesn't come up for me. This tension around my attitudes, around my consumption. Like anytime I have a thought or a sense that this is my money, this is my car, this is my office, this is my lunch, there I notice a tension. Like I don't think it's possible to have that idea without some suffering, that sense of possession. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a car, own a car, or have a house, or have a lunch. I'm just saying, let's investigate what the mind does with our homes, our houses, our cars, our food. And maybe, instead of not having food, change our attitude, like, well, yeah, there's food here. And, and I'm going to feed this body. But if there was somebody else here that apparently needed food, it wouldn't be weird, it wouldn't be wrong to share that food with the other person. And I just notice in so many little and big ways that fear, you know, that fear around being generous. So can we engage this world of consuming but with this idea that we're all in this together? And can we really open to the fear involved? Because it, what it's really doing is it's, it's exposing, it's doing exactly what the precepts are meant to do, exposing the way the mind's conditioned. And I don't think it means we can't have money in the bank. I mean, this is, we always get dramatic about this. Yeah, but if I share then how am I going to take care of myself when I'm old? Or how am I going to, you know, pay for this, my property tax later in the spring when it's due? If I... But it's not, it's never, you know, all or nothing. It's just about uh, being willing to address what's right in front of us. And, you know, it's part of the, the basic principle of practice, which is being inclusive. Like we're including the whole moment, what we see, what we think, what we feel, what we know. We're including everything and we're responding from that place. And then we really start getting a sense how the self-centered view takes a lot of work. We have to keep isolating ourselves. That's not a natural phenomenon. We've got to work at feeling apart, feeling alone, feeling like, uh, yeah, distinct from everything else. Before we go on to right speech, maybe I'll just uh, see if there are any comments or questions about consumption before we move on. Examples from your own life about right consumption or consuming out of generosity, or you could just use the four Brahma Baharas, a consumption that's 
under the influence of metta, friendliness, under the influence of compassion, under the influence of joy, or appreciative joy, under the influence of equanimity. Maybe before I'll just read, some of you I'm sure saw this because it's uh, in the chant book. It's the traditional phrase that the monks and nuns chant before taking their meal. Reflecting wisely, I take this food neither for amusement, nor for intoxication, nor for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness, but only for the endurance and continuance of this body, for ending discomfort and for assisting the holy life. The holy life is the life about happiness and unconditioned happiness. Considering thus, I shall terminate old feelings without arousing new feelings. I shall be healthy and blameless and shall live in comfort. To me, that really has that flavor of equanimity. You know, like, imagine that relationship with our clothes, our car, our food, our homes, all of our friends, that we we have this equanimous view, like, I'm engaging, I'm consuming in these ways um, because it's natural, because it supports what's good. This is a good life devoted to awakening, to being kind, to being generous, to being wise. So why wouldn't we want to take care of it? Feed it, patch it up when it needs patching up, put it to bed when it needs to be put to bed, go quiet when it needs quiet. Even, I think to some degree, although it's easy to it's easy to get confused about this, even entertaining it when it needs some refreshment. Right? So it's not like we have to be afraid. We just want to be honest about what we're doing with entertainments and with consumption. So now, any thoughts people have? I have one story, actually, that reminds me of actually saying this, but it's about non-taking, non-stealing. And as I said in the group, I, I, I have problems with the precepts that they seem to be more thou shalt not as to. And so the first night I was downstairs, I was leaving, uh, I saw that a lot of the stew was left and it was there and it was, it was obviously not going to be used again. So I went over to my food container that I'm storing downstairs and I scooped a little into that, and I didn't think of that at all, because it was coming from the fact that we have financial problems staying with our food budget. And so here's something that I can have lunch to bring tomorrow. And I didn't even think about that, that that is taking what is not freely given. And it was quite striking, and it says a lot of things about my relationship to our budget and our spending at home and sort of a hoarding orientation that I kind of had. Yeah. So that's not an inspiring story, but it really is something that struck me. Well, I appreciate you sharing it, Carol. I think it's really great to hear because this is what comes up for us. And I think we want to talk about things in this real way. Otherwise, it seems like, well, 
Of course, it would be easy to not be greedy. It's easy to be not greedy when we've got a lot. It's precisely because we live in an uncertain world that it's not easy to be generous because we don't know what's around the corner. So even if we have a lot of money, it's hard to be generous because we may need all that money. How do we know? You know, when is enough enough? We don't know. But what we can directly see is, like what you can directly see now is, what was that like for you doing that? And that's what we have to, I mean, in Buddhism, the morality, we are not dependent on someone else telling us whether we've been good or bad. Because we can know directly by the consequence of those intentions that led to those actions. What are the effects of having acted out those intentions? What's going on? You know, are we afraid of being caught? You know, I notice that all the time. Like I mentioned the M&Ms, you know, and I did take some last night after everybody was gone. (laughs) And, but I notice now, you know, it's not that pleasant because even though there's some, you know, sweetness and a little crunch and brittle outside, and then you get the chocolate, and then you get the peanut underneath. (laughs) But even though I knew that everybody was gone, um, or maybe maybe Wynn was still around, but pretty much everybody was gone. (laughs) Everyone that matters. (laughs) No, it matters in terms of embarrassment. Well, you understand. (laughs) Anyway, fear still comes up, you know, and it contaminates the experience. Like the fear of doing something wrong is there. (coughs) Taking, and it's not that it wasn't freely offered. I mean, they're out for people to take. So if you took some, it's okay. And it's okay that I took some. But just, this is the thing around consumption. We have to look at what actually happens while we're before we're consuming, while we're consuming, after we're consuming. That's what the Buddha taught, to be reflecting before, during, and after. Is this setting emotion suffering for ourselves and for others, as best we can tell? <coughs> this is the truth we need to live by, not some something written on stone somewhere that, you know, this is wrong, this is right, but to, to understand sila in terms of the effect on the mind. And we need to be humble about that, like we may not see everything. So we have to keep looking, because it's very easy, you know, we do this all the time, where we rationalize our behaviors as a way to prevent ourselves from looking more deeply. We just say, you don't have to look deeply, Mark, because this is okay. And we, that's the one thing we, we have to put aside. We can't uh, go forward in life without uh, developing the habit of being mindful, of being interested in the mind. Without that, in a sense, we're doomed. If we're not interested in the mind, we lose our barometer. There's just no way to understand skillfulness. There's no way to understand the, the way to happiness if we're not interested in investigating the mind. Because that's where everything is. So. All the information is there. And missing that means we're basically uh, absorbing what we've been taught, 
and acting it out. Now that should be somewhat frightening <laughs> for all of us, you know, that, that, that that's where we'd be. Yeah, when? Well, I was just uh, reflecting on what you said that, you know, I, I noticed for myself um, around patterns of consumption that that there are, are, are deep patterns of, of fear and guilt that are not necessarily healthy or not necessarily even connected with that consumption. So I, you know, just with your hands, <coughs> like, like that, that feels kind of heavy and, and sometimes unnecessary. So I feel like that's true in, in my life and in my certain patterns that I, I'm overly um, tight just because it's, so, it's such an old pattern that I'm trying to see through and relax around. So um, I guess my point is that, that, that that fear and guilt is not necessarily an indication that this consumption is an unhealthy pattern. It's just going to be like an old, crappy but it's the mind state that consumption is just consumption. It's neutral. It's the mind states that are problematic. That's right. So it isn't about whether we have M&Ms or don't have M&Ms or have sex or don't have sex. Morality, the karma is in the mind. Like what is going on in the mind? That's what sets emotion suffering for ourselves and others. I mean, I'm not saying that if you kill somebody that the fact that you killed them isn't harmful. But what really causes problems is the intention to kill. That's the really dangerous thing. More than the actual action, as bad as that action is. So I, I'm agreeing with you. So I, it's not about like, I shouldn't have had those M&Ms, but I need to own, I need to be responsible for what's going on in the mind. Like really looking at that. What is that fear about? Right, and sometimes it's just, it's not about anything but an old pattern that can be released. You know what I mean? That it's, it's not connected with this action, except that it's a pattern that we connect those things. Um, right, but the pattern brings it to the surface. I mean, the, the reaching into the bowl of M&Ms is what brings it to the surface and we get to see it. So it's not right to say that it's not connected. It's arising in that environment. So we want to take that time, as, you know, if we can, we want to, like, uh, suffering is being set in motion. As long as we're under the influence of that old pattern, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's having its effect. So, it, it, yeah. I'm not sure we're saying different things. <laughs> yeah. Edith, on and then Bob. On the eight-day retreat, we listened to the Dharma talk by Cheryl Wilson, and she said that 95% of all of our thoughts are about craving. And I don't know if you recall, but I thought, oh, I'm going to try this. And so for a couple of sits, whatever thought came up, I just said, that's craving. Uh, whether I consciously thought it was craving or not, but I just... <laughs> I, I mean, I still had just tons of energy around it because it was so joyful in terms of release. Of she was right, you know. I mean that most everything um, is is about greed and craving, you know. And we could probably look. We could probably say the same thing about aversion or delusion. You know, it's just a different perspective on that same yeah. arising anxiety and how it manifests. But 
I, I think if it's always arising, I think what you're saying is if that's true and it's always arising, then the M&Ms give me an opportunity to note that and perhaps be aware, perhaps make other choices, perhaps slowly begin to change my yeah, and then just more generally, life. This is our relationship with the conditioned world. The conditioned world exposes view, like the mind's view, the way the mind understands. And it exposes the um, inconsistencies or how it's not in sync with the world. So we need the world to expose to the mind how it's off, how it's diluted. So that, for example, the greed or whatever is really what stops you from having a few M&Ms and really enjoying them. Yeah. Because they work for you all three. Yeah, yeah. Like, why can't that be a beautiful, simple, effortless experience? The crunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bob. It makes me wonder what this, this uh, fear of looking deeply into whatever it is that I don't want to look deeply into. Uh, and then having all these ways of consumptive ways, what are, all these ways of avoiding that. So it seems like when I actually do look, it's, these are not that, I mean, they're not that big of a thing compared to how I kept away from so many things I knew by the consumption. What was that last sentence again? You kept... Well, the, the actual issues of what I'm afraid to look at deeply, mm-hmm. the, the way you put it, those, those issues that I'm afraid to look at, that I keep myself busy with consumption and all these ways of avoiding that intimacy. Yeah. Uh, is the... Keeping away from it is much worse. It's a bigger, bigger problem, bigger issue in my life than actually looking yeah. deeper. But, but for some reason, I, I have all these elaborate ways, whether it's news or eating or work or whatever it would be, to, to not do the simpler, better thing. Yeah. To avoid that intimacy with myself. Yeah, exactly. That, that sounds exactly right to me, for me too. It isn't that we find a scary monster, you know, that we're, we've been running from. We just think there's a scary monster or something. Or sometimes we're just running because that's what we do. You know, we just run from one experience to the, to the next. And we just assume that there's a reason we're doing it, like a scary monster if we don't keep running. Yeah, which is why things like fasting and going on retreats and the different things human beings have done to simplify their lives from time to time has been so instructive over the centuries because we discover that we're not running from anything. There's nothing to run from. That it's actually okay. It's all okay. And then we can have periods of time having been refreshed by having stopped and uh, faced all the imagined demons and realized they're not there and in a sense have made peace, then our consumption is free for a while or freer for a while. You know, and it just, everything kind of comes alive. Breathing comes alive, eating comes alive, 
interacting with people can come alive. And it all feels like a more, uh, like a natural movement of generosity and love than neurotic needing, getting, attaining. So then there's inevitably a fall from grace. We get sucked back into the older habits um, that uh, it's almost like it's what we do. We run, we strive, we push, we fight, we compete. You know, it's probably chemical to some degree too, not just in terms of conditioned patterns. Yeah, Cass. So what I'm seeing is then the times when loss um, of a loved one and I started like going crush help, you know, it's just got to be a habit or whatever to feel that void. Sometimes it's to feel a void. It's really the loss of the attachment or isn't it the um, or feeling the pain or not wanting to feel the pain of the attachment in, in the relationship. Yeah, the the loss, the pain of loss. And but the interesting thing is can we actually avoid the pain of loss? You know what I mean? Hmm? Yeah, it's just obscured. You know, because the mind is engaged in the shopping, the pain of loss is obscured, but it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means where it's obscured. You know, it's hidden, but it's still there. I recently helped um, a woman, too, who um, was moving to Texas, and she had, after her divorce, went through this period of buying stuff at Marshalls and TJ Maxx and had this huge collection of stuff, you know, that she was trying to sell. And then I found myself wanting to help her out, so I'm like, I'm buying stuff from her. Yeah. <laughs> it just goes on. Yeah. One, and, you know, we can laugh at the more obvious cases, but we're all doing it in different ways, whether it's like acquiring or hoarding knowledge about things, including the Dharma. Um, I've met some of the people like in Buddhist circles that just are encyclopedias about the Buddhist teachings. But you get a sense that it's somewhat neurotic, like they're looking for security in this accumulation of knowledge or of information. It's not that the information is bad or the stuff from Macy's is bad, inherently bad, but it's the intention you know, that's leading to that action. It's just misguided. It's not leading to happiness. It's kind of a, um, I think maybe there was like a lack of, you know, there wasn't the awareness of what the intention, you know, what what was going on. It's just the consumerism taking over. Yeah. And we're not encouraged to feel pain. You know, and imagine if you had had, you know, a handful of really wise friends and, uh, and they just understood how to, you know, that nice balance between keeping you entertained and then at appropriate times turning the conversation and your attention back to the pain of loss. You know, and then when that was overwhelming, hey, let's go take a walk or let's go see a movie or let's go make some soup together, you know. And then, I mean, that's, that's the kind of culture we want to live in. That's sort of the role of the spiritual community is... Not to sort of say entertainment is bad, but to understand that ebb and flow, like when people can hear or can turn toward what's hard to turn toward, and when 
they're exhausted and they need some space from that pain, you know. And then what would be a skillful way to create some space? Other thoughts around consumption? Yeah, Wendy. Um, that just brought up a story for me. It happened a couple weeks ago. My daughter was um, auditioned to be in a show that she'd been wanting to be in for six months. And one of her best friends got the role that she wanted and texted her and let her know. And, uh, and she just immediately started to go she was upset and she went to go and turn on the computer and wanted to watch a show. And I said, I will do anything with you tonight except turn on the computer. You can't turn on the computer, but I'm completely yours to do anything else. And then we went through this list. I said, I'll go outside with you and we can throw eggs at trees. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to go outside. And she was so distressed. She said, there is nothing in the world I can do that's going to be okay with me right now except to turn on the TV. And I said, you can do anything else because it's important to me that you have a broader repertoire. Uh-huh. You know, that's okay to do, but you guess I want you to have a broader repertoire. And anything, I'll play a game with you. I'll read anything. Nothing was okay. And then finally, I said, I'll give him you, okay, how about I, I give you a massage? And she said, I was going to ask for that. <laughs> the only thing I was maybe going to ask for, okay. How about you give me a massage, massage and we just talk. And so we just laid on the couch and I massaged her feet. And then she'd start to cry. And then we'd start to talk. And then it brought up this whole other story of something that was a grief we both shared about something. And at the end of the night, can we just leave? She said, this was such a lovely night. How <laughs> such an awful night have been so sweet. Yeah. And I'd forgotten that happened until you said that story. Yeah, yeah. Like, Thank God for wise parents. <laughs> Those moments. Yeah, moments. I just need somebody to do it for me now. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually she does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bonnie. I, I, uh, I have a story and I get into the discouragement part of this discussion and uh, <coughs> You know, I, I've never had a baby, but I have been present at a birth where I was a photographer, and, and I know that babies are born unhappy. They are angry when they're born, and crying and rageful, and they want, they want stuff. And it just makes, as an adult, the idea of paying attention to your wanting and altering your approach to it when it began, the pain of it began even before you were born. It just makes it seem so impossible. But nobody has to do it. You know, like, if you're content to be the wanting monster, <laughs> just to be dramatic, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's an appropriate, I mean, obviously a lot of people seem to make this choice for whatever reason, um, that they're just going to go with it. They're going to go with their craving and they're not going to look back. And that's, you know, that's totally appropriate if that's what somebody wants. The question is, are we interested if there's another way? Something that leads to more resonant happiness. That's all. And in Buddhism, you know, they, 
we have words, we call that a worldly person. A worldly person is like an animal in the sense that an animal is totally invested in craving as its means to happiness. And, you know, human beings, most of the time, that's where we're invested. And then as we get interested, as we become more sensitive, if we're fortunate and aren't overwhelmed by life, we're naturally sensitive. And then if on top of that we cultivate sensitivity through meditative practice, then we start to notice how painful it is to be the craving monster, to always be wanting things, and and that be the means to happiness. It just starts to dawn on the mind slowly, persistently, that this doesn't seem like a very satisfying means to happiness. The cost seems so extraordinary, and the benefit, the reward, seems so limited and ephemeral. Might there be another way to happiness? And then we go looking, you know, and maybe we're lucky and we stumble upon some teachings that say, well, Transform your relationship to experience and see how that works. Yes, Bruce. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about craving ever since I decided that that's my personality. And so I can see it all over. And as I've been delving deeper into that, I mean, I think what's really underneath it is just the desire for safety. And and bumping up against uh, the fact that this form, there, there is no safety really. It's like Tommy Shogun talks about, you know, that there's no solid ground. And learning to live with the fact that there's no solid ground. And then the craving of just starting, because yeah, because the craving is a distraction from the fact that I just want the safety here. I want a little solid ground. Yeah. And, um, and just sort of the frustration that, well, you know, what planet, what realm are you planning on living at, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, that sounds exactly right. And when we put it in those terms, it makes it a little bit more clear for us because most of us understand that, oh, that's why craving, that's why I experience craving as frustrating because no matter how much I crave, no matter how effective I, my craving is at getting, it's still uncertain, it's still not solid ground. So the question is, we can crave or we can <clears throat> develop um, peace with no ground. And So what's our means to happiness? Trying to create solid ground through craving, which is eternally frustrating, or to develop an understanding, to develop a way of of being where the heart's at ease with the way it is, the absence of solid ground, doesn't have a problem with the ephemeral, changing, uncertain nature of things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Any last thought before we end? Yeah, Terry, you get the last word. Well, it makes me nervous because I was listening to everything I was going to say it. Um, I've been wanting to ask about this for a while because it's, um, I don't know if it's wisdom or like a mind trick. (laughs) So I'm like nervous because I'm really enjoying it. Um, For some reason, um, when I hear the word greed, I've written a new translation.
definition of what it means whenever I hear that. Because in the past on retreat, when I hear the word greed, it makes me think I'm not supposed to want anything, including not wanting freedom, including not wanting to be peaceful, including not wanting to be kind or have love. Or, and so that's it's just messy. So I've taken the word greed, and when I hear it, I translate it to mean focus on not having something that I want. Does that make sense? Because there could be the thing that I want. Like I, as a mother of a toddler, like, oh my God, like I, I can't wait till every time I see her. Is that greed or does that mean enjoying this? You know, I'm not like upset about it. I'm not having tension about it. I just, whenever I'm with her, I'm so enjoying that. And mm. I, I think that could be maybe labeled greed by some ways of talking. But when I use this definition of what makes it problematic is when I'm my attention is on how I don't have something that I want. No. It's like a negative mind state. And there's tension, and I'm upset. Like I could say I want money, but if I'm thinking about how I don't have it, that's grief. But if I could say I want money, like I enjoy money. I love giving money to Common Ground. I love giving, you know what I mean? I love using money to exchange for certain, you know. I'm not sure that that's... That's not greed in my definition, mm-hmm. but I don't know if this is, you know what I'm saying? Because that word has really been a trigger for me, or craving, or whatever. Like this idea that I'm not supposed to enjoy what I have right now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So I've, yeah. taken to, I've taken to put the focus for me on when it's problematic is when, even if I'm using words that sound right, like, oh, I just really enjoy, or I just want more of whatever. If I'm upset, it means I'm focusing on how I don't have it. Does that make sense? I don't have it. I should have more. There should be more. Right, right, right. And to me, I'm labeling that the greed experience. Yeah, that sounds right. Just, I mean, is that? Yeah, and I and, and and no, 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 no. And we need that distinction because there has to be a place for desire. You know, right. desire is a neutral act. You know, action or a neutral force in our minds, and that's neither good nor bad. It's just. The desire to do, the desire to be, desire to care for the child, to eat, to take care of business. And then greed or craving, the one definition that I like is when uh, there's identification with desire. So you can have desire to take care of your toddler, but when you construct a Terry, you know, who's got to do it right, then there's suffering. Then there's craving to be the the super mom, you know, the perfect mother who does everything right. But to take what you just said too, like when you say the Terry who's got to do it right and it has tension, I, and again, it's just, I work with my thoughts a lot, maybe it's being a therapist, mm-hmm. but like this, when I hear the Terry who's got to do it right, I hear what that really is, because if it's negative, that's kind of the absence of what I'm wanting, so I hear the Terry who could get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, then yeah. I think, well, I look for a thought that feels better, like you can't get it wrong, or you know, it, everything's okay, or all is well, or whatever, versus trying to do something to, like, fix it, I try to work with the uh, mind state. But it does feel like, it feels so much better to, to, like, think of it differently, that I'm, like, like, so I can have a really great retreat just by kind of shifting those, in those subtle ways, how I'm thinking about stuff. Right, yeah, because it all comes down to that attachment. So by, it is it is a trick in a way. We don't have to have a different life to be free. The mind just needs to let go of attachment. But is that problematic? That it's, it seems kind of, it's been really useful. Yeah. And you'll know if you're tricking yourself or if it's real by whether or not you suffer. 
And if you're just, see, that's where the, that's why it's so important that we are sensitive, not overwhelmed by busyness or by pain or by anything, because then we lose our sensitivity. If we don't have sensitivity, we're not going to be able to see cause and effect, like whether that so-called trick is just a trick or whether it's you're sort of shifting your view from ignorance to less ignorance, you know. We have to leave it here. It's a little bit after 8.30. Let's just take a few moments. We'll consume the silence together. (laughs) And we can experience directly appreciating the community, appreciating these wise, pragmatic teachings, feeling satisfied. Having consumed the evening talk or whatever it is that we feel. And letting any attachment or identification, any painful drama, letting it be seen for what it is, extra, and letting it fall away. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for your comments. So we'll have some walking practice now, and then the evening chant and sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.